We return to uh, the book of 1 Samuel and uh, continue our series that we began um, at, the, uh, at the fall, in the fall. A little bit of a break while the cruises were away and we're going to pick back up where we left off in chapter 5 and starting next week. Um, in the evening, tonight in the evening, we have our annual pulpit exchange with Emmanuel Fellowship Church, so Pastor Bokestein will be preaching. Uh, beginning next week in the evening, we'll have an Advent series uh, looking at the coming of the Messiah as prophesied in the Minor Prophets. So uh, that will begin uh, next week in the evening, and we'll continue Samuel in the morning. First Samuel chapter 5, and we're going to finish the chapter beginning in verse 6. You'll recall that um, our story ended with, um, or last where we, where we last left off, the Ark of the Covenant was deep inside enemy territory in Dagon's temple, and uh, Dagon, the, the idol, had fallen on his face, lost his head, lost his hands. Um, that's where we're picking up now in verse 6. That took place in Ashdod, and now we read that the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of God, of the God of Israel, must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. That's far the reading of God's word. There's a saying, uh, you get what you wish for. And it's funny because on the face of it, that sounds like good news. (laughs) You get what you wish for. Wonderful. But we never use it in a a positive sense, uh, do we? What we really mean is you should have known better, and now uh, you can't go blaming anybody but yourself for the predicament you find yourself in. You get what you wish for. The Philistines wanted the ark. They wanted it. They took it. It wasn't forced on them. Uh, They uh, captured it in battle. And they, with uh, great rejoicing, brought it into their land and into uh, the temple of their god. Now, they did not want, want it, obviously, to worship Yahweh, But to tout their achievement and their prowess to neighboring territories, they wanted to shame Israel. And sure, if they could maybe somehow harness some of the power that is inside this mystical box 
and, and, and get stronger in the process. And that's great. That's why they wanted the ark. Well, they wanted it. They wanted Yahweh. In this chapter, they get what they wished for. As I said, uh, we ended with the ark uh, last, last time, three weeks ago. We ended with the ark deep inside enemy territory. It's placed in the shrine to Dagon in Ashdod, this Philistine city. And they thought, the Philistines thought this was checkmate. They thought they, thought they had finally um, defeated their, their long enemies, the, the Israelites. They thought this was checkmate in their ongoing conflict with Israel. Of course, what they didn't realize is you can never have checkmate against Yahweh. And so Dagon, he is found instead in the dirt, bowing before the ark, instructing the Philistines what reverent worship looks like. This is how you should worship. And this is who you should worship. He's teaching them. Um, and yet they don't get the lesson. They don't get the lesson. Even after his head falls off and his hands fall off, they still don't understand. Uh, indeed, the author uh, is mocking the Philistines and their idols and their idiocy. As the chapter continues in verse 6, Dagon had just been found handless. And what are we told in verse 6? The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashton. So in comparison to this impotent figurine shattered on the floor of his own temple, we have Yahweh, who has no home field advantage, as it were, being described as one making a fist and swinging a knockout punch against his opponent. The hand of the Lord, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. Uh, the hand of the Lord is a, is a phrase, a saying that was popular uh, or common in the Old Testament. And it almost always refers to God's judgment or God's wrath. But what, what is God's wrath against his enemies is almost always his salvation for his people, right? So as God executes judgment on his enemies... At the same time, he's ushering in salvation and rescue for his friends. Israel, hearing this story in Samuel, would have thought back to Egypt. They would have thought back to how God rescued them. Even though they were weakened and battered and in chains, Israel's God was strong and mighty and ready to do a great work of deliverance. And this is how that is Mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 26, the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. The hand of God was that which brought uh, terror and signs and wonders to the Egyptians, but it brought rescue and redemption to the Israelites. Even Pharaoh's magicians recognized that the plagues came from God's hand, his own hand. We read this in Exodus chapter 8. Verse 18, the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. And the magician said to Pharaoh, truly, this is the finger of God. Hearing now that God's hand is heavy against the Philistines, uh, the fact that plagues soon follow should, would have been no surprise. Right? That's what God's heavy hand does. It sends plagues 
sends, sent gnats to the Egyptians, uh, sends tumors to the Philistines. That's how God acted in the past, and there's no surprise that it's how he's now acting in the, in the present, in their circumstance. Uh, interestingly, the word that's translated heavy in both verses of, uh, 6 and 11 is the same word that is elsewhere translated as glory. Glory, it's the the very common uh, Hebrew word for glory that you'd find hundreds of times in the Old Testament Bible. It is uh, here used to describe God's hand as being heavy. The word is kavod, and it it means a weightiness. It means a, a heaviness. And so when it's translated glory. It's, it's kind of a hard word or a hard word to define. Glory is kind of a hard concept to define. But since it comes from this um, meaning of, of weight or, or heaviness, I think it suggests that God's glory is God's utter realness. That, that uh, he, he's not a figment of somebody's imagination. He can't be ignored. He can't be dismissed. Uh, it's not as though... He has no significance. He is real. He is present. He demands to be taken seriously. You know, we think about a phrase maybe somebody would use if a, a friend uh, comes and delivers really um, surprising news, shocking news, and as you try to process it, you might say, you know, wow, that, that's heavy stuff. And what you mean by that is this is really important. This is really significant. Uh, This is worthy of consideration. This is not something that I will forget quickly or I will dismiss lightly. That's the idea of the heaviness of God. The glory of God is the fact that he should not be dismissed. He's utterly real. This is how the Bible presents to us the reality of God. He might be invisible. He might be spiritual, but he is in no way weightless. As the eternal, infinite, and limitless God, he does bring himself to bear on all of his creatures, including you and me. He matters. He can't be ignored, even though some of you today are trying to ignore him. He can't be ignored. He is reality. If God is not real, nothing is. This is the idea of God's glory. He's heavy, significant. And that's why the glory of God often refers to visible manifestation of Yahweh to his people. If you think about it, um, uh, you know, the, the idea is that he's so real that, that the people even perceive him uh, or see him in certain ways. So like the fiery and cloudy pillar that leads Israel out of Egypt and through the wilderness is referred to sometimes as the glory of the Lord. Uh, God's glory is said to fill the tabernacle. Again, that's fire and smoke. Uh, this is why, on, upon the ark's capture, uh, Eli's grandson, you remember, is named Ichabod. So we said the word for glory is kavod, and then you add the, uh, the word ik, that's, that's where, in the front of it, so you can hear it. Ichabod, Ichavod, it means where's the glory? The glory has departed because the ark was the representation of the reality of God. He's there with his people, and now that it's gone, they're saying, The glory's gone. Where's the glory? It's departed. The visible and the undeniable manifestation of God's realness and his nearness 
had tragically departed, but it had not been destroyed. Uh, Far from it, uh, God's glory is now being experienced by the people of Ashdod, by the Philistines. They could not deny the heaviness or or the reality of Yahweh. Uh, they, They felt it. Literally, they feel it, right? Because what, what, what does it say in verse 6? He terrified them and he afflicted them with tumors. If they didn't learn that Yahweh was the one true and living God through the destruction of Dagon, then they're going to learn it through the destruction of their bodies. God is, is afflicting them with his reality. Uh, an exact determination of what is meant by tumors is impossible could be could mean boils on the skin uh, the king james version renders it hemorrhoids the point is this it is not pleasant and it comes from the hand of god and so the philistines tried to flee god's glory but of course it's an impossibility remember god's glory is his realness he can't be ignored and that means he can't be outrun again even though some of you today are trying to outrun him He can't be ignored and he can't be outrun because the whole earth is full of the glory of God. His realness is everywhere. Uh, But they try, and so the the Philistines, they try to flee him and and, and escape his glory. And so what happens in the remainder of this chapter is something like a a holy hot potato, right? They're trying to to pass off the ark uh, from one group to the next. So the uh, people of Ashdod, they're like, we got to get rid of this thing. And so... Uh, they, they put it up for sale on Facebook Marketplace, and the people of Gath, they, they say, we would like it. Please, can we meet you at the parking lot at some you know, uh, time where people are going to make sure it's all safe and everything? We're going to take the ark, and then they realize as soon as they get it, um, we're going to put it back up on Facebook Marketplace. But the Ekronites at this point are like, we heard what happened to you. We're not going to take it. So you see how everybody's trying to pass it off, and as it goes from one place to the next, the... Um, the affliction gets worse. It gets worse. So, um, for example, Ashdod has tumors, but uh, the Gathites, we're told they have tumors, and yet their tumors, in verse 9, it says, broke out on them. They burst, so the physical malady is more severe. Um, And then it causes a great panic. When it gets to Ekron, even though they say return to sender and we don't want it, the effects of God's glorious presence still intensify. Even though they don't bring it in, even though they don't set it up in a temple, the Gathites still are affected, or the Ekronites, excuse me. And it says that uh, God also uh, sent a physical calamity there. The, uh, verse 11 For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So we see how things are intensifying. It was before a very great panic. Now it's called a deathly panic. I don't think this is hyperbole. Uh, Verse 12 indicates people are really dying, and I think maybe some of them are dying just from the fear of everything. But you know how panic can cause riots, and uh, maybe neighbors are turning on one another. Whatever it is, things are going from bad to worse. And so as we uh, come to the conclusion of this, this episode, which is meant to be humorous, this is Israel uh, recounting the ridiculous attempts of their enemies to try to overthrow their God. 
Um, as we come to the end of this episode, the question is, what's the lesson? What do we take away from, from any of this? And I think it, the lesson comes down to, to, to this, and it's a fairly simple one. What is your relationship to the glory of God? That's what we're meant to be asking as we read this chapter. What is your relationship to the glory of God? What do you make of the heaviness of God? Do you take him seriously? Is he as real as real can be to you? It's so tragic that many people spend their entire lives pondering the answer to the question, is God real, when God is the realest thing that there is? And yet people are wondering, is, is, it, is, he, is he real? Is he true? There's nothing more real, nothing more true than God. And I think what's particularly important for us to recognize in this story, that the reality of God, or as we've said, the glory of God, it's the same glory that rescues and redeems Israel, that brings judgment on the Philistines. In other words, you are going to experience the glory of God one way or the other. You can't escape it. You can't outrun it. The glory of God comes to the people of Israel, as the whole Bible shows us, in blessing. It comes to the Philistines with terror and panic, with death and destruction. You can experience the glory of God in one of two ways, and these are the only two options, blessing or curse. God is not neutral, but the good news today is that he is gracious. He's not neutral, but he is gracious. If you're willing to bow before him today, he promises you something astounding. The glory that would otherwise crush you, he will actually share with you. He'll share it with you. Because what... what, what do we have waiting for us? If you're a believer today, what's on the other side of this life? Glory. What will Christians be right now? We are justified. We are being sanctified. One day we will be glorified. God will share what rightfully belongs only to himself. We will be made glorious as he is glorious. Paul tells us that we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. And we do that by looking to Jesus Christ. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, Hebrews 1.3 tells us. He is God's glory. It's in Christ that we're told in John 1 that we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. What an astounding statement John makes there in his opening of the gospel especially in light of the fact that the Hebrew people knew well that nobody could see God and live, and yet that changes in the incarnation before where there was smoke and fire and lightning and cloud, before where you could see a tent or a box, and you could say, that's the manifestation of God's glory. Now you see a face. Now you see a person, a person you can know. A person who can know you. Before, Moses could only look on the back of God. Now we have a face-to-face -face relationship with a personal God in Jesus Christ. In the Gospels, we see people, they know him. 
They, 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 they talk with him. They're friends with him. They invite him over for dinner. I mean, talk about reality. Talk about realness. Talk about God being real. He's sitting next to them at dinner. You say, oh, that was then, though. I, I don't see Jesus today. Well, this is not a privilege reserved only for those who lived during the ministry of Christ. We do behold the glory of God through Jesus Christ in his word. For all who uh, look upon this word, talking about the Bible, you open up your Bible and as, as you look at this, this word, you see something more than just letters on a page, but you... You see a person, you see the Lord Jesus Christ captured here in this book. For all who see Christ by faith, this promise is for you as well. You too will be made glorious as he is glorious. The promise in 1 John is that we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Do you believe in that promise? That's the question. If you believe in that promise, then that is your future. You will behold the glory of God, and beholding God's glory has this amazing, strange effect. It makes us glorious too. It makes us more real, if I could put it that way. It makes us more real. You know, people have no trouble acknowledging this present reality, that this world is real. Sure enough, that the pew you're sitting on is real, the chair you're sitting on is, is real. People have no, no difficulty acknowledging this present reality. It's, it's, the, it's the things of God. It's God. It's the spiritual realm. It's the, the afterlife. That's the thing we question. Is that, is that real? In his allegory, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis turned all that on its head. He pictures people making a journey from this world to the next, like they're doing a cross-country road trip in a, in a, a VW bus. And as they enter into the next world, something strange happens. They find that everything is, the way they put it, is, is solider, more solid, solider than things in our country, they say. The grass is so sharp that it will pierce you. The, the water is so thick that you can't drink it. Everything is diamond hard. And what's, what's the point of all this? Well, well Lewis is, is trying to show that while these people have thought of their world as the real one, the one with substance, and, and thought that heaven was the less substantial world, they actually come to see that heaven is reality. That's the place of substance, and this world is the shadowlands. If you disregard the reality of God, you disown your own reality, and you are consigning yourself to vapor, a mist here today, gone tomorrow. But to put your faith in Christ, and to one day see him in that better country, that solid country, changes things. The, the glory of Christ is sort of like the, the Midas touch. You remember that Phrygian king? Everything he touched turned to gold. Everyone who will see Christ will turn to glory. Well, perhaps today you feel the heavy hand of God. Maybe you feel the conviction of sin. Maybe you feel the, the dead end uh, of pleasure-seeking, the vanity of anger or pride. 
you feel like you've hit rock bottom and you don't know what to do, that, let me tell you, is the heavy hand of God upon you. And it's a gracious thing that you feel it today rather than feeling it forever in eternity. You are feeling the reality of God. That means you're feeling the glory of God. Don't run from it. Rather, pursue after it. Promote it. And it will be your future reality. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. And we ask that you would write its eternal truth upon all of our hearts. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.